Thank you for tuning in to Our Black Voices Matter. We can't remain silent. We must speak up. So let the conversation begin. Hey, Keith, and thanks for letting me come on here and talk talk to uh, your audience today. My name is Alex Cunningham, and I'm a father, uh, a black father of two. And my wife, my partner, is also a black woman as well. So I, I really do enjoy the having this conversation because I feel like the information is so necessary for people to have. And I, and I appreciate people like you having a podcast like this, talking about black voices, you know, trying to spread the information both amongst ourselves as a community, but share it with other people as well. So, I mean, when I heard about the, the recent murders about Audrey, uh, Aubrey, Ahmaud Aubrey, George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, and again, it goes back even to my high school days, just hearing about these, hearing about people passing away, and um, with the advent of technology being able to connect the world so intimately, you can almost not go a day or a week without seeing something else in the news that's you know quite traumatizing to to people. So, I mean, when I heard about them, they, each of them were different cases, but all of which were um, unprovoked. So what's scary for me is I have family in Georgia. I myself live in Miami, Florida. Um, I guess the deeper south you go, the more problems you do run into. But it's all over the world where, you know, black people aren't allowed to just be normal. You know, you go for a jog, you're driving your car, you know, you have your family in your car, um, you know, you're sitting in your house. It doesn't matter what you do at any moment, you can die. And I feel like other people, other races don't have to live with that reality. Now, being a, a black father, again, my kids are young, and I'm young as well, but my kids are young, and I know that as I grow up and as they grow up, they're going to get to an age where they'll be leaving the house on their own. And I can only imagine what parents are feeling now with teenage children or young, you know, young adult children or even kids in middle school who, when their children leave the house, unfortunately, for what's isolated in our community is we don't know for a fact that we're going to see them later on today, or we're going to see them on the news, or someone to call us and tell us devastating news. And I think that's the the main thing that I got away from, the, you know, the most recent passing of our brothers and sisters is with this technology and how interconnected we are. You can't go a day without seeing something traumatizing and then also reliving it in your own life and thinking about it, how it impacts you and you know what can you do to be safe because you can't jog or sit in a car, be home and be safe. So what can you do? Um, as it comes to, as it pertains to protesting, me personally, 
I'm I'm all for burning everything down. I've never been a fan of peaceful protesting. Um, I spent a lot of time reading and looking up the history, uh, going back to the civil rights movements, and we, as the black community, but also the white community, really applaud a lot of our peaceful protesters. And my um, my gut always tells me if you're if you're enemy and I and they're not enemy in in a way that it's it's malicious or I'm you know we're looking for war but if the person that is oppressing you is finding people within your community to applaud and extol there's got to be something fishy and it's not so much with those people but it's the the ideology right if the oppressors can reach into our community and and pick out a pastor from the south and and raise him to national levels by supporting him there's got to be something funny about the concept that they really want indoctrinated into our community right when back on the plantations when they had a message to pass on to the other slaves they they oftentimes wouldn't deliver it themselves. They would get the house slave to, to try to deliver the message. Now, again, I'm not trying to call them house slaves. I'm just thinking of the concept of if they're all for peaceful protests, if police will work with organizers to allow you to walk the streets and then the next day shoot one of your brothers or sisters for doing what other human beings are allowed to do without being fearful of it, right? Sit in the car or, or is jogging. If the same person who will tell you, yes, you can protest, yes, you have freedom of speech, is willing to shoot you, then that seems like a perpetual cycle that is not going to fix itself. So I'm all for burning the place down. It, it seems like this society, particularly the Western society, only pays attention when money is being impacted, right? The, the colonies... Um, were very, you know, they expressed their discontent time and time again, but it wasn't until the tea was dumped into the ocean or the sea that, uh, you know, it was really paid attention to. The discontent was really addressed. It wasn't until, you know, you know, people like Nat Turner went across slave, you know, went on plantations and killing white folks that things really began to be noticed. You didn't see the, I'm Jamaican myself, so I hear stories of, you know, the slaves when they were on their passage and they were in Jamaica, you know, the training ground for, for the slaves, that when they began burning down the sugar fields in Haiti as well, when they began burning things down, it wasn't until then that their attention, right, was grabbed. So for us, it's a little bit different. They're not sugar plantations, but yeah, if you can burn down a Walmart or a Target, uh, not to incite violence or riot or for anybody to get hurt, but if you can attack financial institutions, that's when you get attention. Because unfortunately, it seems to me that the more you march and the more you, you know, beg at the feet of an oppressor, the more control they have. So even if they give you certain rights, when someone gives something to you, it can easily be taken away. It isn't only until you take something that it can really be respected. And this same phenomenon has been going on for, for centuries. And we talk about generational trauma and post-traumatic slave syndrome, right? Or post-traumatic stress syndrome, whatever you want to call it. It is so, you know, 
well ingrained in our society that we teach around the dinner table to our own children, right? When the oppressor can teach um, the oppressed to pass on information to their children, their work is done, right? Now it becomes a, a cycle, a machine that repeats itself. So until we can break free of that, until somehow we can break free of that within our homes, we're always going to be subject to everything that's happening outside of us. There's an old African proverb that says, when there's no enemy within, there can be no enemy without, right? If there's no enemy within us, there can be no enemy outside of us, right? So when we're able to conquer our own mental health and well-being and to separate ourselves from the outside, right, to understand that the things that are happening to us are not our fault, right, then we can begin to take control of the things that we can control, right, our finances, our, 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 the, the solidarity in our homes, the way we educate our children, the only way to break that stress syndrome, right, the only way to conquer our well-being, again, is to separate ourselves from them and to understand that just because they oppress us, it doesn't mean that something's wrong with us because we are perfect. It means that something's wrong with somebody else. And the only thing that we can do is to continue to build ourselves up and to tear down you know, the things that are holding us down that we can begin to break past that post-traumatic stress, to be able to break through that generational trauma by teaching the next generation something different and breaking the cycle. Now, the police defunding um, and its impact on everything I've just said, if I were in trouble, really in trouble, I would be dialing, dialing 911. I'd be calling the police. So I do see the need for police. I do see the need for a society having a social construct and where certain people have been given the right and the ability to protect those who cannot protect themselves. I do believe in that social construct. However, I do also know that what we have now are not police, right? What we have now are not police. What we have are thugs in blue suits. The idea of police is a brilliant idea, but the people that you put in the clothing have to match and agree to the social construct. They have to agree to their un both understanding and the practice that they are there to serve. They're there to serve and protect. I don't believe that the police should be defunded if, if the society in which a police is, right, the local community that the police is in, if that community has their finances divvied up in a way that other institutions are being well-funded, then the police funding should stay as it is. For instance, if I live in Miami Gardens and there's funding to take care of people who are in need, funding to take care of education, funding for you know various after-school programs for the children, if there's funding for things that I believe to be core and necessary to the growth of this community and this society, then the police funding should stay as it is. But if the police funding is overwhelmingly, you know, if it's overwhelmingly, uh, if it's higher, 
than all the other fundings and it can't be justified, then there's an issue. Right. If it's a per capita thing, if it's a crime rate thing where the funding has to be tilted slightly in the direction of the police, then that's understood. However, currently as it is, if you look at some of the balance sheets of these police departments, that's not the case. As of right now, it seems like the police are being overfunded to make sure that the um, the finances of the office are being taken care of, but also they're getting fancy gadgets. It almost seems like some of them are preparing for a war with the infantry type of equipment that they have. Right. So it's not it's not a matter of defunding. It's a matter of having sensible funding for the police and making sure that they understand that they have an equal role in the community their their role is not higher nor lower than anything else in the community we need education we need protection we need security financial security for people who you know are going through something or what have you and we do need policing so we need policing as equally as everything else but it has to be understood that those people are signing a social construct and the minute they break that construct you punish the person inside the suit Right. You punish a person inside the suit and you do that by having the society lay judgment. You can't have the police judge themselves. You can't have police police themselves. It's like having children punish themselves for doing something wrong. And as a parent, I could tell you that that would make no sense. Nothing would happen. Nothing would come of it. You cannot have somebody police themselves. Right. There must be a society because the police have entered into a social contract with the society. Now society gets to determine what the punishment is for breaking that contract. So it's not a matter of defunding. Again, it's about holding people responsible. Now, at the hands of the police, have I ever experienced any kind of harassment? I mean, yes, there have been incidents, um, you know, through throughout my youth, middle school and high school and in college um, where I went to mostly uh, white schools growing up. Um, I think, you know, my mother made sure of that. She, we came from Jamaica um, when I was at a very young age and she made sure that she tried to keep me out of what she considered the ghetto because the ghetto in Jamaica was um, very, very rough to put it, uh, to put it lightly. So when we came to America, she made, she made up her mind that we would never live in the ghetto because the idea was that it would be the same kind of um, violence that you would see in the Jamaican ghetto. So when I came here, she did her best to keep me in mostly white schools all the way through middle school. And subsequently, I went to a mostly white college as well. So a lot of, um, a lot of things happened in my youth that at that time, you don't recognize... Um, the implications at the time, you don't recognize the things that are happening, the things that are being said, the way you're being treated. But as an adult, as I look back on the memories, I start to realize that things weren't right. And now it's the memories, fortunately, that allow me to be able to make my choices moving forward. Right? Unfortunately, some people don't have that luxury. Unfortunately, some people's only interaction with police or their latest interaction with police led to their demise, led to their death. Um, and for me, uh, luckily, I was able to survive all those encounters. My encounter with you know racist white people, I've been able to survive all of those encounters. 
having been immersed in the white community as a child growing up, I was able to survive all those encounters. So I am blessed. And I, my heart goes out to the people who weren't able to survive those encounters. And it's my memory of them and also my memory of my encounters now and understanding that the, the trauma that it has, however small, the, however the microaggressions do begin to add up, right? The micro traumas do begin to add up to the point where you do have people riding in the streets. So my job as a black man, as a father, and as a husband is to, one, use those memories to make sure that my children understand that they're powerful and they're royal and that, you know, none of those things are acceptable. Uh, two, to protect my family and, you know, do anything by any means necessary, keep my family moving in the direction that I feel is necessary. And three, to make sure that my impact as an adult moving forward is, and we go back to this, is uh, having a financial impact. Because like I said before, it wasn't until the T went into the to C that Europe began to understand what was happening. It wasn't until Black Wall Street was burnt to the ground and hundreds of life, lives were lost till we realized how important money is to the peep, to the oppressors. If they didn't do that, we would never have known how important money is. But now we know that it's not about the marching. It's not about how we feel. It's not about our rights. If we can find a way to build a financial um, mecca and have a foothold in the world, then I think all these things really go away. And here's my theory. Every other race has some kind of country backing them. So you don't see a lot of races on camera, right? You None of these things can happen to the Chinese because they have China backing them. None of these things can happen to any of the Jewish people because they have Israel backing them. You're not going to have anything happen to Russians on camera because you have the Russia backing them. Um, you have a lot of countries that have backing from a larger country out there in the world. A lot of, excuse me, you have a lot of races that have backing from a lot of large companies, I mean, uh, countries out there, which would spark retaliation. But for us, they've so they have raped Africa to the point that if a black person has any issues here in America and it's recorded, Africa can't respond because they've put their they've put their hands so deep into Africa that we have no backup, either financially or militarily. So my theory is that when I get to a point and I bring my brothers and sisters along with me and we, become, as a cohort, put our finances together to put together a financial mecca where now we have a financial foothold and we're able to lobby and actually make changes and not ask for changes, but make them ourselves and take our rights back. And should we not be able to claim our rights back financially, they understand that militarily we have the force to protect ourselves. It, it is only until then that we get attention. It is only until then, until we revive the strength of the Black Panther Party, not the Black Panther Party, but the strength behind their movement, which is so feared by the oppressor. It's not until we revive the financial strength and independence that was Black Wall Street that got their attention. It's not until we revive the preachings of someone like Malcolm X, which got their attention. It's not until we revive those things that actually got their attention that we will be able to take what is rightfully ours. We can't keep asking for things anymore because if we keep asking, we'll keep getting denied. And if we get anything, like these 
fuddy-duddy amendments, guess what? These amendments can just as well be taken back as well. So, I mean, those are my those are my thoughts on this inequality and injustice is if we can come together and, and put together a financial foothold and put together a, a, a physical presence as well, um, it's all about getting a, a seat at the table. And once you have a seat at the table, you have their ear. And once you have their ear, we can live in a peaceful, um, equitable society. But until then, we'll just have to keep marching.